community, your people in this world, Lord, that we would bring the gospel to the folks that we encounter, that we would um, carry the kingdom everywhere we go, that we would carry the good news that Christ died for our sins, that he carried the weight of our iniquity on his back, and, and I praise you for that. Um, I, I pray that you would help us to be vessels of that, um, bringing it out into the world, bringing it wherever uh, lost, hopeless people are, that we might share the gospel with the folks that we encounter. In Christ's name, amen. I was really hoping Dale Morey would be here today, because I'm sure he would have gotten this. Um, I was looking at photos this morning of a, uh, of a historical event. This is Operation Overlord, June 6, 1944. Anybody know what this is? I would have expected, what? Operation Overlord. Anybody know what it was? This is D-Day. Um, I, uh, I was reading about D-Day. I was thinking about it. I, I think it is one of the most uh, well-represented uh, events in American history as far as film and, and books and everything else. And, and I look at what these guys did, and it is uh, a little mix of terrifying and, like, envy that I experience. You know what I mean? Because these are guys who, um, they saved the world, right? And not only did they save the world, they, like, like jumped into the fire to do it. You know, if you watch movies, I think, you know, it's weird to talk about it in terms of movies. Um, you know, you think about it like these guys charged. I mean, I can't run on sand to save my life. I couldn't imagine running out of a, you know, <laughs> out of a landing craft, which is basically made out of concrete and steel. Uh, I, was, I was reading about those things. They were not uh, particularly phenomenal. They, they ran out through this. They, they ran up a beach, up a hill, and into machine gun fire and everything else. I mean, like, like this had to be terrifying. Right. And actually, my grandfather was at D-Day. He was not in the first wave. Uh, He was in a later wave. And I've heard some interesting things about it. I don't know very much about um, my grandfather's military service. He won a silver star and he would never tell anybody why and never talked about any of it. Like it was just this internal thing. And like to give you some perspective, there's like one hundred and thirty three thousand people who landed, not just on the beaches, but like jumped out of airplanes. Right. Because it's easy to think of like. That scene with the landing craft, I mean, people jumping out of airplanes into the dark, and they're all over the place, and they're lost out there, and they got to find each other, and they got to, like, like gather up and create units of, like, whoever they happen to find, and, and, um, and that was it. And, like, I, I grabbed this one up. Uh, I found a colorized copy of the, the one. There's a particularly famous photo um, of these guys in this, like, barge heading to the shore, and, and I could only imagine that it was, it was terrifying. Right. But it was also probably like a deeply inspiring moment. It was probably a deeply like because they knew they were going to do something that was important that had to be done. They were doing something for their country. They were doing like these guys had heard all about the importance of what they were doing. I think uh, Eisenhower gathered with the paratroopers and he gave them the order victory at all cost. Um, And and again, I picked these because it's the back of their heads. Because this would be the view you'd have, right? You would see the back of the heads of the guys in front of you as you go in. And we're going to jump over here, and we're going to have a look at this one. These are paratroopers. These are guys in the landing craft. Um, you can't see it very well. Oh, did you did you not show my second one? Do you want to back up? Okay. Uh, go to the next one. Let me see the next one here. 
All right, so on the left, the larger picture, I was looking at this, and like the interesting thing about it, right front and center, near the front, second row, there's a guy who looks really Italian, right? Maybe? I don't know. He looks, he looks very Italian, and I, I think the guy right behind him looks like he's about eight years old, right? These were farmers. They were city kids. They were mechanics. They were dentists. They were, were whatever. These were like a little bit of everyone. And I'm guessing as they were riding in, nobody looked at the guy next to him and said, yeah, nobody said there'd be an Irish guy here. I, I want the next boat, right? Nobody said, hey, 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 that Jewish guy. Hey, that Catholic. Catholic. None of that. Um, 133 soldiers. The majority of the soldiers who landed on D-Day were uh, from the U.K., from Canada, and the U.S. Nobody looked and said, can I please not be next to the Canadians? Right? Like, nobody said that. Um, Australia, Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, France, Greece, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, and Poland, and like, like all over Europe, you've got these soldiers from occupied countries, some of them, charging ashore. And again, I'm guessing, I've never read an account where a guy stops and says, not with that one. Anybody ever come across that? Because fact of the matter is, if somebody is shooting at you, if you have an important job to accomplish, you really, really quickly run out of excuses to find different people to associate with, right? Like all of the dumb distraction goes away really quick the moment, you know, somebody is shooting at you. Like, like everything shuts off in your head and you just do the job you had. In fact, so much so, I was talking to my brother-in-law who served in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, actually Summer and Jessica, their brother, uh, and he said that when they would be in combat, you get these new guys and they'd be in combat for the first time and they'd have to yell at them not to collect their brass because they would be shooting and when they went dry, they would crouch down and start collecting their empty shells because every time they would go shooting on the range, what would they do? Finish shooting, collect the brass, and your brain shuts off, and everything you did a minute, ago, you know, months ago when you were training kicks in, and you do that. And people would actually be killed collecting brass cartridges in the middle of a firefight. Isn't that crazy? Um, this is a, a photo of uh, Eisenhower talking to these soldiers and saying, hey, guys, you're going out there. You're going to do this, and we are going to win. That is it. Victory at all cost. Um, there were 500 Native Americans. There were 1,300 um, African-American soldiers who went on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Uh, I didn't look at a whole lot of the others. It was, a, it was an amazing cross-section of people fighting evil. And evil is a fair word, right? Like, we all agree, evil. Um, why am I talking about this? Well, and I, I have always resisted using D-Day as a, as a sermon analogy. Um, and I... I could not come up with a better one. Because what we're seeing in the calling of the apostles is the beginning of, like, God's operation overlord. Right? Like, D-Day proper for the scriptures would have been Pentecost. It would have been the day that the church really started. But from here on out is moving in that direction. And you see minor instances of it where Jesus sends out the apostles, the sent ones, and he sends them out to do the work. And they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, 
we cast out demons. Like, can you believe it? He's like, well, I told you to, and I gave you authority, so of course you did. Like, you know. Um, and they, they told people about Jesus. They were witnesses of the things they saw. They carried it with them. Like, and, and it is the beginning of the kingdom coming, right? Like of their job of bringing the kingdom into the world. As we dive into our text today um, and look at the second half of it, we, we're going to talk about this, the kingdom, the, the invasion, the moment God enters our world and begins to do his work through us. Um, a little background. Apostles. What are they and what is their job? Um, apostles are. The word literally means sent one. Jesus kind of coins it in a different way. He makes it mean something different than what it meant originally because a lot of times it was just a document. When Jesus uses it, he refers to a guy. And he says, your job is to speak on my behalf with my authority and tell everybody what you saw. Um, we've done a bunch of teaching, or I've done two teaching videos on this, and we did a deep dive on last week's sermon. You can learn more about it if you want to go back and look. But here's the important thing. These are the guys who are specifically chosen to lead this effort. Everybody with me? They are the guys. And to a degree, the text we're going to look at is Jesus standing around with them and saying, victory at all costs, gentlemen. Right? The, the commander, the king, the master telling his men, this is the thing that we got to do, and you're going to start it today. Your, your training day is now. Um, we're going to real quick jump back and look at some Old Testament, and then we're gonna, I'm going to explain why. Everybody with me? This is Isaiah. He is talking, to, talking about Israel, right? He says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentile that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So now watch this. The original mission of Israel in the world was to be like in relationship with God first and second to go out and tell people about Jesus. To spread, or not about Jesus in the Old Testament, they didn't know about him yet, to tell people about God, the one God, right? Like their job was to go out and tell people, like to bring Yahweh, the, the God who created everything, the one true God, to the nations. That was their job. And more or less they just didn't do it, right? And actually still today, it's weird, it's kind of carried over. You hear people say, uh, yeah, Judaism is a non-proselytizing religion. They don't tell people about their faith. They don't evangelize. They don't do missions. They don't do any of that. But they were supposed to. And this text is actually about Jesus. Jesus is going, and he's bringing Israel back. And then God says to him, listen, beyond that, you're going to bring the nations. You're going to bring the nations to me. They're going to be a light. And that is us, guys. We are the nations. Most of us are not Jewish, to my knowledge. Um, so let's see where God calls Israel to do their job. The Lord has said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. This is the, like the covenant, one of the covenants he makes with them. Uh, from your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, Israel. And I will bless you, and I will make him great. And you will be a blessing. I will be, bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What does that mean? Well, partially it's a prophecy about Jesus, right? 
the whole world would be blessed through his descendant, which is Jesus. But this is, that's a little later, like as it goes, this gets refined. The whole world being blessed through him is pointing to the job that, that his descendants, the Jewish people, would have. And that was to tell people about God, to be a light to the world, to, to you know, like introduce people to, to Yahweh. Like they were never supposed to keep it to themselves. They were never supposed to look at their neighbor and say, yeah, you're not Jewish, you're trash. They were never supposed to call the Samaritans dogs. You know, like, they're not supposed to do any of that stuff, so they're supposed to tell them about God. And they didn't do it. Um, Genesis 19, 4 to... This actually might not be... Oh, yeah, it is. All right. Um, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. This is actually Exodus. I'm sorry, I did not change the book. That's what threw me there. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Meaning that Israel was supposed to be unique and treasured. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So what's going on here? God is telling them, listen, your job is to be a kingdom of priests. Meaning you are the people who interact with God on my behalf. Well, if they are a kingdom of priests, what's their, like, who are they interacting with God for? Like, the rest of the world, right? Like, their job was to be the intermediaries between the rest of the world and God, and they just didn't do it. There's a million other verses on this. I can't do all of them today. Understand the primary objective of Israel, their main job was to go to the nations. It was to, to, to tell people about Yahweh. Um, So the big idea here, as we dive into our text for this week, we're going to jump into Mark, understanding that God had given Israel a job. They had not done it. And so Jesus' commissioning of the apostles, which we're going to go through the first couple of verses real quick, um, and the new beginning of Israel. Like, what he's doing is, he's going to pick 12 disciples. Why does he do that? Well, there are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is this big number associated with Israel, period. And so when, like, a Jewish person hears 12, they're going to be like, oh yeah, that's Israel, right? And so he is recreating Israel at this moment and then giving them Israel's calling again, right? I am not, so, all right, I, I got to, this is, nobody's going to understand this except for like three people. And so if you're one of those three people I'm talking to, you know, like my disclaimer, I am not preaching replacement theology. I am not doing any of that stuff. This is not some overly complicated idea that I am just not doing. Don't, don't do that. Okay. What I am talking about is God takes his people, the one he is redeemed or redeeming on the cross, right? Like beginning with the 12 and he's saying, guys, you are my 12 tribes. You are my new Israel and you will go tell the world about me. And so he restates the mission. And so we dive into Mark 3:13, and Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Now, Um, important in this, again, like if we're going to parallel this to Israel, when God calls people, he calls them, they do not bless him with their presence. Got it? God chooses his people. He chose Israel because they deserved it? No, because he's God, right? Because Abraham was destined to be a great nation? No, because God made him a great nation. Every good thing we accomplish, every good thing we become, every maturing we do is a product of God working in us and recreating us into something better, which is what is about to happen. And so, 
those he wanted, he called to him. He appointed. Now, appointed. This word, I referenced this last week. I'm going to say it again. Appointed means made. He created he appointed, he made new. He, like these guys were just ordinary guys, and now he has made 12 that they, they excuse me, uh, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive, or, drive out demons. What we talked about last week in reference to this was um, the two things that he does here, right? Um, he, he gives them two jobs. Be with me which is what he told the Jews to do, right? You are my people, I am your God. We'll delight in each other. We'll spend time together. We will love one another. You will be my people, I will be your God. Here it is. That was the point. They were supposed to enjoy God's presence. And then the second half, they were supposed to, like, tell the world about it. They didn't do that part. They really didn't do the first part very well either. So, you know, none of us would because we're all sinful. Um, And we needed God to do it for us. So he picks these guys out and he makes them the 12. He makes them Israel. Why do I say that? Because 12 is the number associated with Israel. So he has created them, Israel, having called them because they were awesome? No. We're going to get into that in a minute, too. Eventually, when in the book of Acts, they get called before the Sanhedrin, they look at Israel, they look at these guys, and they're like, hey, aren't these like redneck, illiterate jerks, like the guys who are with Jesus? How do they know anything? And that's, I mean, that's the New Eric translation, right? Like, but he basically said these unlearned men, these, these like, these guys are like, like junior high or elementary school dropouts. They don't know anything. You know, how are they so knowledgeable? Um, because none of them were anything spectacular. They were the ones Christ chose, the one Christ invested in, the ones that Christ turned into the new Israel. And so in the process of recreating Israel, he spends most of his ministry, like, so in relation to this, real quick, another aside, as Jesus did ministry, you look at all of this stuff he did. He went out into the desert and he fasted for 40 days, and then he was tempted by the devil, right? Um, we all know that story. But that is actually, in a very real way, the story of the wandering in the wilderness. Jesus went, he wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, he fasted, he prayed, and he did it better than the Jews did when they were in the desert, you know, in the Exodus. He did it right. And so he comes, like throughout the Gospels, you do this all day. Throughout the Gospels, he comes and he stands in the place Israel was, and he does it perfect. And like over and over and over again, he does it perfect. And in doing it perfect, he demonstrates that he is like perfection, that he is able to live out God's commands perfectly um, and so forth. And so like he is retracing the steps. And so as he picks the 12, he sort of has a right to do it. And he is recreating a moment from the Old Testament. What's the moment in the Old Testament? Where God basically says to the 12 tribes, hey, guys, you're my people. Here's my covenant. Like, in this case, it is, hey, guys, you're my people. Here's your job. You are a nation of priests now. Go out and do it. You are a, um, you're my people, and your job is to be with me and to go tell people. Um, and so there's this whole parallel thing that is all over the scriptures. Um, here, he's recreating the nation and sending them out to do their original job. What's their original job? Be with me. Go tell. Right? Um, and then this serves the purpose of fulfilling the plan. And beyond that, and I read this a couple times, it's important to understand, to remind the nations that the salvation comes from the Jews, right? Like the Jewish people brought salvation into the world. Like they were the chosen people. They were the promise. And through them comes Christ. Through them comes the covenants. Through them comes, like, like our knowledge of God because, like, salvation came through the Jews. Um, and it's a reminder to them. That's, uh, by the way, John 
I want to say four, but I'm not positive at all. I'm probably wrong. I just pulled that number out of the air, but it is in the Gospel of John. Ask me later if you really want to know about it. So what else? So the first four in this list. So we're going to see a list of the disciples. Everybody loves lists of names, right? Genealogies. <laughs> Come on, TJ. You're a teacher. You're supposed to like doing roll call. Um, so the first four on this list, they are all the same in all of the Gospels that present the list. The, the three uh, synoptics include this list. All of them have the same first four people. Um, almost, they're almost identical, and you can kind of figure out that sometimes they use one name versus another or the whatever. Like it's not like they're pretty consistent, and the, the variance between the lists is um, all based on um, it's all based on like like a Greek name or a Aramaic name or a Hebrew name. Because fact of the matter, or Jesus renaming them, which is a whole other animal. Like, fact of the matter is most people, like, there's like four languages spinning around here, or three languages, and Jesus renames people, which makes it all hard. Um, so the first four people are all the same on all of the lists that we have. And anytime the disciples are listed, these four guys are always the first four. And the cool thing about it is that the first four are the ones who were closest to Jesus personally. And so as we look at these names, understand these are the guys who knew Jesus the best. Um, Peter is always first. Peter is always first, but he was also the leader. The four that we're going to see were considered to be like sort of the front men. And the front men's status came about as a result of intimacy with God. It's not because Peter was loud. It's not because he was pushy. It's not because of anything. It is because they were close, intimate, personal friends with God. And the same goes for us. And we'll get to that in just a second. But it is a consistent thing. Like, King Saul was like seven feet tall in a nation of guys who were about five feet tall. And he was big, and he was muscular, and he was awesome. And people looked at him, and they're like, that dude is a king. Right? King Saul did not really love God. He had no heart for God. Like, the one he picked was a child, David, who was a shepherd, not a warrior or anything else. God made him a warrior. God made him a king. God made him everything. And, like, in the same way we see with these guys, it's not because they were awesome. It's because they were intimate and close with God. They were close to Jesus. Um, And this is the way it is for all of us. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon. Now, his name was Simon. Everybody got it? Simon is the name that his parents gave him, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter means rock. Sometimes you see it, Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock. (laughs) Um, And so, like, like Jesus renames him. Why? Because he recreates him. And also, I think Jesus is probably the kind of guy that would give you a name, right? Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to call you Steve. I think I'm going to call you whatever. Why? Because he has authority to do so. Also, he made a brand new person in Simon Peter. But Peter, he's renamed him. And he's close enough and in authority over him so that he can rename him. And he's able to give him a name that is personal. Um, Then James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is Aramaic, if I'm not mistaken, meaning sons of thunder. And then finally, Andrew. The three closest to him were James, John, and Peter. Anytime you see Jesus doing something cool off to the side, James, John, Peter, and Andrew are there. And more often than not, it's James, John, Peter, period. But Andrew's also in that circle. 
Um, why does, oh, by the way, the sons of thunder, meaning either they were really pushy and loud, possibly making fun of them. I'm not, you know, whatever. Uh, or it might be a reference to their father who may have been really loud. Like there's a whole lot of speculation about it. We don't know. One way or the other, Jesus gave them a nickname. You guys are the sons of thunder. I wish people had called me something like that. That'd be awesome. Um, Peter was a fisherman. James was a fisherman. John was a fisherman. James and John might have been moderately wealthy. John was probably the most educated guy in these four. Got it? Um, And by most educated, I mean still a fisherman. Um, These four guys, and here's where I'm going with this, and watch this. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, if you want to be somebody that God looks at and says, well done, my good and faithful servant, a lot of times we look and we say, I just have to do more. And in reality, greatness is a product of intimacy with Christ that drives us into like behavior that is different. Right? Peter um, ran away. Like At the time that Jesus was uh, on trial, Jesus is in the courtyard outside of the trial that's happening. People accuse him of knowing Jesus because he did. And he runs off crying because he's denied him three times and all this other stuff. Peter is not a hero, an action hero at all. In the end, when they crucified him, again, I've said this a bunch of times, but this always blows me away. He watched, he watched the Romans crucify his wife the day before they crucified him. And as she was dying in agony, he cried out to her, remember how he loved those who crucified him. This is the man who cussed out a little girl saying, I don't know that guy. And ran away because Jesus recreated him. He made him new through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his blood, through the power of the work that he did in him over the course of decades. And then when Peter went to be crucified, he said, I'm not worthy to die in the same way as my master, as my Lord. And so they crucified him upside down, which would have been ten times worse than being crucified regular. Um, And he chose to do it because, because intimacy with Christ drove him to a behavior. Intimacy with Christ changes us. It changes our lives. If you struggle with sin and you think, I just need to stop doing this, and you get a swear jar or whatever, an accountability partner, and you confess every time you sin, in reality, like, the thing that makes us stop sinning is intimacy with Christ. That's it. Sometimes it means leaning on the people around you. Sometimes it means walking with other people, everything else. But it is intimacy with Christ. That is the core of all leadership. That is the core of all discipleship. That is the core of greatness. That's what prayer is about. That is what everything is about, is intimacy with Christ. That's what you are recreated for, is intimacy with Christ. So, having beaten those four names to death. By the way, John is the only guy on this list who does not die of natural causes. James is the first one who is killed. He's killed in like Acts chapter 3. He's the second named martyr. He's the first of the apostles to die. He is, and it's just like him passing. Yep, then James was killed. He was called James the Lesser sometimes, by the way. Um, Jesus' commissioning of the apostles. Oh, I'm sorry. I got lost there. The apostles, here's the thing as we go through the rest of this list. There's so much detail in picking apart we can do, and we're not going to because there's no time. Um, these apostles are all different. They're from different backgrounds. They're different people. These are people who would not talk to each other in ordinary life, many of them. Got it? They're people who would, like, actually, um, Matthew's on this list. Matthew, if you touched Matthew's house, you were considered ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean, and you'd have to go to the temple 
and like sacrifice something and be washed for having touched Matthew's house, right? It's, it's, it's terrible. Like these guys would not have been friends any other way. And so we dive into it. Andrew, who was in the previous one, I just said him again. Philip, Bartholomew. By the way, Bartholomew is not even a name. It's like a title, and they don't ever actually give his name. Isn't that weird? Um, And then it became Bartholomew. It's not a name, though, in the ancient world. Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot. This is an important one. Simon the zealot. A zealot, this could be a reference to the town he was from. It could also be a reference to the idea that Simon was a member of a particular political group, the Zealots. The Zealots were all about kicking Rome out of Israel. They actually led a rebellion later and were killed to a man by the Romans. They dug them out of caves and killed all of them. The Zealots were the ones who brought about the Sicarii. The Sicarii were assassins. They carried these knives that were curved, and they would walk up to people in a crowd who were bad guys, according to them, and they would stab them and walk away. They were terrorists. Simon the Zealot. Is that the right name, right? Yes. Simon the Zealot. So zealous for God's word that he would, you know, these guys would murder people who are associated with Rome. And he is like three names after, four names after Matthew, the tax collector, a race trader. Someone who sided with Rome to rob his neighbors. Simon and Matthew, not talking. Not friends. Matthew probably would be risking his life most of the time being around Simon. And finally, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's a bunch of speculation about the name Iscariot. I don't really want to get into it. But he may be actually from the same area as Simon the Zealot, by the way. There's some uh, pretty strong arguments saying that they were from the same town. Um, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The fact that like Judas is included every time on the list is kind of huge because why would you include the traitor, right? So these guys traveled with Jesus. They were the ones he picked. But they're not people who would associate with each other. They're people that God picked to be his people. Now watch this. The people God picked to be his people, I'm guessing along the way they argued. In fact, we know they argued because it said they did. And sometimes it would say, they would argue about, well, I'm greater than you in heaven. Hey, when it comes time for us to get our reward, I'm going to get ten times more than you. And they would, like, one-up each other because they were kind of jerks, right? Like most people generally are. They were human. And so these twelve humans who were very different from each other, from very different backgrounds, when the time came, they did not look to the guy next to them and say, hey, I'm not getting off the boat with you, Right? They didn't stand there on, D-day, or on the like appointing of the apostles and say, yeah, that Matthew guy, you're, you're off base. I'm not going to be on a team with that guy, right? They're different backgrounds. They're different people. They're all Jewish, but they all have one thing in common that bound them, and that was Jesus, period. This is important because it is very easy to look at the guy next to you and say, that guy does not belong here. I am a better believer than them. Don't you know that they've been married more than once? Don't you know that they struggle with alcohol? Don't you know that they smell funny? Don't you know that at the end of the day, like the apostles didn't care because they were given a mission. They were given a job. They were told victory, right? 
And they walked off the boat next to each other as the body of Christ, as the as God's apostles. So the apostles, they go out and they complete Israel's mission in the world. This is not scripture, so i got to jump out of the scriptures because the scriptures only record the destiny of Judas, who hanged himself, right? And uh, the other guy that we know about is James, who was killed almost right away. Like he's the guy who, like he barely gets off the boat and he's gone. Um, this is Eusebius, uh, and he's referencing a text from Origen. Origen uh, was an early church father um, but, and wrote hundreds of books. I mean, like, was one of the most well-written guys, but, like, most of his work is gone. Um, but this is uh, 300 A.D.-ish. Got it? So, like, it's a little removed. It's based on stuff from beforehand. It's handed down tradition, but it is not scripture. Such was the condition of the Jews. Meanwhile, the holy apostles and disciples of our Savior were dispersed throughout the world. Parthia, according to tradition, was allotted to Thomas as his field of labor, Scythia to Andrew, and Asia to John, who, after he had lived there some time, died at Ephesus. By the way, in the meantime, John was in prison on Patmos for a number of years, um, which is an island prison. Uh, Peter appears to have preached to Pontus, Galatia, uh, Bithia, Bithynia, I'm sorry, my uh, Greek names are awful, Cappadocia, and Asia. To the Jews of the dispersion, meaning he went around, he preached to the Jews all over the world. And at last, having come to Rome, he was crucified head downwards, for he had requested that he might suffer in this way. What do we say? What do we need to say concerning Paul, who preached the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum, and afterwards suffered martyrdom in Rome under Nero? These facts are related by Origen in the third volume of his commentary on Genesis. Um, we don't know exactly what happened to all these guys. We don't have scripture supporting it. We have tradition. We have other history books. Um, the, uh, we know that Judas hanged himself. We know that John died of old age, right? John may have been boiled in oil once, I'm just saying. And he definitely lived in prison for a little while. So life was not easy, right? Um, Peter crucified upside down. Paul had his head cut off. I think Matthew was run through with a spear, meaning a group of soldiers held him and ran a spear through his guts and left him to die. Some were skinned alive. Some were set on fire. Some were fed to animals. Like, all of them died horribly. They were in the first wave. They had a job. Their job was to be witnesses of what they saw. And if you read the way these guys preached, they went out and they said, I knew Jesus. I saw him. He, I saw him heal. I saw him bring people back from the dead. I saw him crucified, and I saw him alive again on the third day. Actually, John's the only one who actually saw them crucified. Which, by the way, John went with Peter to the trial. John is the only one who didn't run away. John is the one who watched Jesus die. John was the only one who was willing to die with Christ on that day, and he's the only one who died of old age. Kind of weird. Um, but here's the thing with these guys. They swore to the very end, to the tortured end, that what they saw was true. Anybody ever tell a lie? Oh, come on. <laughs> I'll raise my hand. Anybody ever tell a lie to get in trouble? Anybody ever tell a lie so you could be homeless? Anybody ever tell a lie so somebody might hurt you really badly and keep telling the lie despite the fact that they're hurting you badly? Anybody ever tell a lie so that your family would hate you? 
These guys swore up and down over and over again for the rest of their lives that they saw what they saw. And because of that, they become witnesses at a whole other level. They're not even preaching something they read. They're preaching something they saw, something they experienced. And that is incredible. That is, they changed the world, these unlearned men. Um, Why does it matter? Why am I sharing this? Because they were the first wave. These are the guys who didn't look next to them and say, I'm not getting off the boat with you. These are the guys who got off the boat and said, victory at all costs, even if it cost me my life. That's it. So what do we do with all of this? First off, we have a mission to fulfill. Um, We have a job. God has given us a specific calling, right? And if you read the Great Commission, I should bring it on the back wall, a part of it is. um, The Great Commission sounds an awful lot like what he said to the apostles. Go out into the world. Tell them about me. Having spent time with him, having known him, having seen it, they go out and tell people what they saw. And they make disciples, and they teach people to follow Christ. They baptize, and they change the nations, the world. There's actually stories that some of them made it as far as India. Um, The oldest church in the world is in Ethiopia. The oldest continuous church is in Ethiopia, and it was planted by one of the apostles. Uh, I don't remember which one. Maybe Matthew. I'm not positive. Um, I'll do a video on it this week. But they went out and they did the job that Israel had. They fulfilled the job that Israel was given. This is a perfect recreation of what God intended the world to be, intended his relationship with his people to be. Um, And so this is our mission. We are to know God. We are to spend time with him. We are to experience him. We are to be in relationship with him. And then we're to tell people what we experience, what we see, what we know. This is our job. How do you experience God? He's really, really abstract. We pray. We spend time with other brothers and sisters. Talked about it in the sermon last week. It is very good. If you need help with it, come talk to me and I will help you. Um, But this is our mission. Spend time with Christ. Tell the world. Um, As we discussed last week, being with Jesus and maintaining closeness with him are central to the mission success. If you want to really be successful in doing the thing that God has called you to be, do and be. Be intimate and close with Christ, and in doing so, he will change you into what you need to be. I really love, uh, has anybody watched Band of Brothers? Man, it was a great series. Since I'm talking about D-Day, right? Like uh, about halfway through the series is D-Day, or a third of the way. Um, this is great. Just a powerful, powerful like TV series. Um, and you watch these guys training together, and this amazing thing happens as they're training together. They go from being one thing to being another. They go from being ordinary men to being soldiers. They grow close together. They become brothers in the process of training and then fighting. Um, This is what we're called to be. The church, the body of Christ, is meant to be diverse. It's meant to be organized around Jesus specifically. There is a movement in church management and growth planning where they like say, we are only going to reach out to wealthy, upper-middle-class white families, which, by the way, is very funny because, like, every time I've ever read somebody's plan, it is always these guys who live in this neighborhood, in the suburbs, who make a lot of money, we're going to get them to come to our church. You never read, hey, these gang members, we're going to build an entire church and program around reaching homeless people or drug addicts or gang members. Like, nobody ever applied that model that way. They always wanted the rich people. You know why? <laughs> because it was not about reaching the nations at that point. It was about 
something else. Anyway, that was really judgy of me. I didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Um, but we're supposed to be organized around Christ. And so we go out and we share the gospel. When we do our meeting next week, I, for years I was terrified of doing annual meetings. Oh, my gosh, annual meetings are terrible because that is the time people fight. I've never seen that happen here. We talk about Jesus. Awesome. Um, we're not supposed to be afraid of each other. We're supposed to talk about Jesus with each other. We're not supposed to look at that guy and say, oh, my goodness, what a terrible person. We're supposed to say, Jesus saved him too. We're not supposed to look at the neighbor and say, you're, you're garbage. I'm not doing anything with you. We're supposed to love people, love each other, show people Christ, bring them to Christ over and over and over again. And this is hard because sometimes members of the church get hurt and they damage themselves. They fall into sin. They get enslaved to stuff. And they break their lives. And we look at them, and it's really easy to take a step back and say, hey, I want nothing to do with that guy. Right? Not our job. Our job is to restore those people, and Christ is glorified by the showing of mercy. That's our job. It's to gather up new soldiers to step off the boat with us. My challenge for you this week, y'all are standing at the end or at the current line, because there will be lines after you. You are standing at the current line of people whose job it is to go out in the world and share the gospel and make disciples. You have kids who are going to watch you and learn how to be like Jesus by watching you. That's terrifying, isn't it? (laughs) Every time my daughter opens her mouth and something I would say comes out of it that's angry or obnoxious, I say, oh, wow. Right? Our job is to be Jesus to our kids to our neighbors, to the lost in this world, to drug addicts, to thieves, to liars, to the broken, to the miserable, and to Pharisees, and to everyone. My challenge for you is to look around and say, am I training soldiers? Am I helping the people around me? Am I watching the guy in front of me fall over as he charges up the beach and then stepping over him on my way to where I'm going? Or am I picking him up and carrying him with me? Am I watching people get wounded and not stopping to help them? Am I, what am I doing? Am I spreading the kingdom of God? This is what Christ called his apostles to do. I know it was a less lighthearted sermon than I usually do, but I could not think of a way to do this right without being heavy. Because our job is heavy, and we're living in a world that is dying and going to hell. Turn on the news and watch a while. Jump on social media, and you'll understand hell is probably already here only going to get worse, folks. And our job is to share Jesus with these people, to be Christ, to preach the gospel and make disciples. If you need help with that, if you feel challenged by this, come and talk to me. We'll figure it out. Um, I'm going to close in prayer and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you would be with the folks who are sitting here. I pray that we would recognize we are not apostles, but that we're, we're the next wave, Lord. We are... You know, soldiers in the Lord's army and we'll never march in the cavalry or you know, ride in the infantry or, or anything else, but that our job is to share Christ, not to wipe out the enemy, but to bring them to, to you, to be your witness, to be your light to a dark world, to, to speak the truth and love constantly, to mend the broken and heal the, the lost and, and carry our wounded brothers onward toward heaven. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good day, folks.